welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Uh, you turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be continuing through, through chapter 6 this morning. And we've been, uh, we've been working through this book for a little while now. And, and we're almost halfway through this letter. In fact, we'll be roughly halfway through this letter after today. And if you remember, we, we said that this letter was really written uh, by Paul to try to address some concerns, address some issues that have been going on between him and, and the church in Corinth. And, and so many scholars believe he was trying to uh, basically burnish his credentials, give, give uh, credence to the fact that he was an apostle, because many were questioning whether or not he was a, a true apostle. And so a, a big chunk of this book, what half the book, is dedicated really to Paul trying to lay out what does it mean to be an apostle? What goes into that? What are the credentials of that? And that begins somewhere in the middle of chapter 2. It goes all the way really to the end of chapter 7. And the reason I think that Paul's doing this is because he's, he's got to support the fact that he's actually for these people. You see, many people have questioned whether or not Paul was for them. That maybe Paul was not really an apostle, but not only that, maybe he was using these people to try to get his own glory, his own vain glory, so to speak. And again, that doesn't help the fact that Paul already had a, a bit of a crisis or a bit of a, a sharp rebuke to the church in Corinth in this previous letter. And so you can imagine now the situation now between Corinth and Paul are a bit at odds. Much like when a parent has to discipline a child, that child might begin to question, does that parent really love me? I mean, if they really loved me, wouldn't they have said those things? If they really loved me, they would have allowed me to do those things. If they really loved me, they wouldn't make me do those chores sort of idea. And so Paul here, he's trying to make sure and he's pleading with them that he's for them. He's on their side. And that he really, all he wants for them is to receive this gift from God. Receive this grace, this power, so that their faith would not be hollow. We saw that last time where it talks about him begging and pleading that their faith would not be in vain. That he's just simply wanting them to live as the new creations in Christ that they already are. Now, when I'm, when I'm counseling people, or when I'm teaching people to counsel, I often tell people that no one cares how much you know until they know you care. Right? No, one, no one really cares your information, your credentials, and what, you, what information you have until they know that you truly care about them, that you're for them on their side. And that's, that's not just true in counseling. That's true in all relationships, I think. I mean, think about that parent-child relationship. If, if the child doesn't believe that the parent loves them and is for them, they're not going to heed their counsel and listen to them. It's even true in business. Think about sales and, and customers. If you have a customer that doesn't trust you as a salesman, you're not going to sell anything. They're just going to walk away from it because they're going to be questioning your motives all the time. Whether doctor-patient relationships. And it's even true with, with me and you in terms of the body of Christ and how we relate to one another. Do we, do we have a sense of trust that the other person is for us? So Paul, understanding all this, is going to take a moment now to show his love. It's almost like he's giving me a, a resume, a, a evidence of how much he loves these people so that he can then begin to ask them a song. 
And we're going to see that in our, in our passage this morning. So let's pray and uh, we're going to see what God's going to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, that we have a new life in you right now. And that means that we can trust in your power. And this morning, Lord Jesus, I need your strength. I need your power. I need you to be the teacher. And I believe there's something very powerful, very special that you want to share with each one of us this morning. And so may your spirit make that real to us in a very powerful way. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna, our passage of study is really chapter 6, verses 3 to 13, but I'm going to start at verse 1, if you follow along in your, in your own Bible there. And Paul writes here, In working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. There's that hollow faith. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry may not be discredited. All right, let's understand verse three there. A lot of people will ask me to share my thoughts on what's happening in the world. Maybe it's a political issue. Maybe it's something that's happening uh, just in, you know, social media or, or in our culture. And they're asking me to stand up and say something. We got that a lot when we were talking about going through the pandemic and what about masks and churches being open and what are your stances on this and that. And, and a lot of people were asking us to, to take a harder stand one way or the other. And, and we elected not to. And the reason was because we didn't think that was really what was really important. That we had to pick and choose our battles. And, and we didn't want to discredit or we didn't want to get a, create a barrier between us and Jesus. That, that people wouldn't listen to Jesus or wouldn't be interested in Jesus based on a political statement. And so we want to make sure that we don't discredit our credibility or our reputation. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here, that, that he wants to make sure that he's doing everything in his power so that he doesn't ruin, doesn't discredit the ministry that he has towards them. That he really wants them to know God's love that he really is coming at, uh, towards them and after them for their own benefit and their own gain. Now, that's a nice notion, and it's a nice thing to say, but how do we know it's true? And, and I think here that the skeptic might say, Prudhoe. And I think they would have some, some validity to that. And I think that's what James is getting at in chapter 2 when he says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. I'm going to prove to you my heart. I'm going to prove to you what I believe by how I live. And so I'm guessing James must have been from the state of Missouri because Missouri is the show me state, right? And that's sort of this idea. So Paul's like, let me show you, let me prove to you how much I do care about you and how much I love you. And so it was going to give us now, at the beginning of verse four, three different lists. And you'll see it because the first list begins with the word, the word in, 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 in. And then the second list is all going to be about by or through. And then the third list is going to be regarded as or yet, where Paul's going to contrast now uh, what he and his fellow ministers are going through. So we're going to start at that first list of ends, and there's 18 of them, right? So it's loaded here. So beginning in verse, verse 4, he says, But in everything, our, uh, commending ourselves as servants of God, here, and here comes the list, in much endurance, so that endurance is that patient endurance, that, that perseverance really of Romans 5 verse 3, right, where we're able to persevere under the trial. He's talking about now resilience and, and the ability to keep going in afflictions. 
That word means stress, so pressures that are the, the world is placing on us. Or in hardships, the, the difficult times where you lack. You, you just feel like you're missing something. And distresses, and that, that distress specifically is referring to the anguish within our soul. That emotional torment that you're going through. And beatings. Now here's one we don't typically relate it to, but, but Paul is literally talking about beatings. Where he's being struck and he's being whipped. And he was going through that, through imprisonments, where his freedom was being taken away. I mean, how many times was Paul arrested and thrown into a prison? And tumults, which I had to look up that word, uh, disorder, chaos, calamity going on around you. Can anyone relate to that? And labors, where you're literally toiling away to the point where your strength is being zapped from you. And sleeplessness where you're just lying awake, just thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and can't seem to go to sleep. And I think about the Apostle Paul and how he talks about how often the, every burden within the churches, he was carrier within him. And even in hunger, that lack of physical sustenance. You know, I look at those, those 10 things right there, the hardships and the, the chaos and the calamity and the, the pressures and so forth. And the first thing I thought of when I read this was, that is not a prosperity gospel there. Paul, you just need to have a, a more positive confession. You need to speak more positively and, and make it happen, and then it will become real. I'm very much tongue-in-cheek because I'm very much against the prosperity gospel. Right? You may have heard the prosperity gospel. It's uh, the whole idea of health, wealth, and prosperity or your happiness. It's the name it and claim it or the blab it and grab it. Which, you know what, it's pretty clever. I would, if I was part of that movement, I would own that, that phrase. But that's not what we're going to see here in Scripture. Now, why I'm very much against it, though, is because I believe the prosperity gospel damages our gospel. It damages the kingdom of God. Let me, let me explain why. By starting with understanding what is the prosperity gospel teaching. It's teaching this idea that, that God's reconciliation, that his, his promise of abundance applies to material wealth as well, right? It applies to your physical wealth and, and your perpetual happiness. And that last one might be the most difficult one or most uh, evil one aspect in there because now people have this idea that I should always be happy. I should always be cheerful. I should always be, be filled with joy and everything's wonderful and everything's great. And I should always have that, that positive confession. It goes on to teach that God's redemption includes being set free from things like material poverty and any and all illness. That you never be sick. You just need to claim the, the healing that you have. And that God's blessings are dependent upon your generosity of giving to him. That what you give to him, he will then turn around and give you more. It's very motivational. Promising you greater and bigger things are just around the corner. All you need to do is just have a little more faith. You just need to, need, to, need to try a little bit more. You just got to do a little bit more. And so what happens is because it's running on your faith and on your work, it's centered on who? On you, on what you do. And now you're your own savior and you don't really need Jesus. You don't need God anymore. It's up to you. And if you don't have material wealth, if you don't have a healthy body, then what's the problem? You don't have enough faith. There must be sin in your life. Why are you doubting? 
And so now what ends up happening is you start to feel all this condemnation, all this sense of failure. And you see, the prosperity gospel goes often after the most vulnerable. That's good praise them. Because when you're, when you're desperate, you'll do pretty much anything. I remember when I, when I first started, went into ministry and leave a, a, a well-paying job as an engineer and you go into ministry and now you live off of people's support and you have to raise support. And at the beginning, I, I had no one to support me. I only had a few people and they were family. And, and beyond that, I hadn't helped anyone yet. And so it was a gamble to, to risk supporting me. And so I had very little, no support. And I basically just eating away at my savings, just watching them go down week after week after week. And I started getting more and more desperate. And I remember one time finding an ad in a, in a newspaper where, where someone says, um, send me $20 and I'll write back to you how you can make between one and $500 a week. Pass it. I was like, oh man, this is brilliant. I, for $20, I can be making one to $500. That, that would change everything. And so I'm thinking about it, but I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm scared because to be honest, $20 is a lot to me at that moment. So I started doing some research and I figured out that the letter they write back, they tell you, put an ad in the paper asking people to send you $20 <laughs> and they can earn the top of the box. But I was legitimate. I was this close to doing it because I was so desperate. I would have done anything, almost. And that's what this prosperity gospel prays them. People who are desperate, people who are, are sick, people who are, are lame, people who are, are poor, and it's offering them everything they're hoping for in this world if they just do what the minister tells them. I had a... And so to hear someone who purports to be a man of God make that claim is, is so devastating, I think, because what it does is, is it defames God. Because what happens when that person doesn't get healed? What happens when they don't see that prosperity they're hoping for? Again, they're just going to blame themselves. But really, all the pastor's after is they're just after their own material wealth. They're looking for that extra fancy jet or fancy car or big house. And then there's a lot of, lot of them out there. And I thought about naming names. Because it, it really is, I'm angry about it. I understand Jesus walking into the temple and, and turning over the tables there because they've turned the, the house of God into a, a den of thieves. And I see, I, that's what this prosperity gospel is doing. But God said, don't, so I'm not. But I can guarantee you about half the people on TV are doing it. And that's how they afford it. And I've, I've heard them, like, you don't want me to have this small private jet you want me to have this larger private jet, don't you? Now, please understand. I'm not saying that pastors can't have a nice clothes or, or a nice house or nice things. If a pastor wants to spend $500 on a pair of running shoes, that's their choice. Right? There's, there's no sanctification, no holiness in poverty. I dress this way because I lack style. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's all it is. This is, this is as, as good as it comes. This is like my nice shirt, right? So ask my mom. She knows, right? So, so it's not about how they spend their money because it's their money. In the same way, if you wanted to spend $500 in a pair of running shoes, that's your choice. 
That's your prerogative. And God is happy to bless his children with nice things. So if you, if you have a nice car, that's a wonderful thing. But we've, we've gone too far with that in some ways, where now we think that your material success is proof of God's blessings. And that's not the case at all. Again, as we're going to see, that wasn't the case of the Apostle Paul, and it wasn't the case of Jesus himself. So it's not about what they wear and the sizes of homes. It's really what is their motivation? And then God has a problem on you try to get rich off the gospel. It's not wrong to make a living off the gospel. We're going to see that when we get to chapters uh, 8 and 9, probably sometime next year. Uh, when we get there, we're going to see that. But, but the prosperity gospel teaches they're trying to get rich off of off God, after God's people. And God doesn't, have, God doesn't like that. But here's the, here's the bigger damage I think it does, is it sets people up for failure when hard times come. Because there's this belief, there's this idea that, that we're not supposed to struggle, that it's not supposed to be hard. That God, you've abandoned me now. In my time of need, you've, you've failed me. And then again, they feel like failures in that condemnation because they lack the faith and the effort. And they're just dying on the vine. But what's interesting, as I thought about it, is the fact that we don't have a prosperity gospel strengthens our gospel. Think about it. Those apostles, those first 12 apostles, all 11 of them were martyred. The only one that wasn't was John, and he was boiled in oil and then left on an island to die. Congratulations for not being martyred, John. None of them got rich off of this. None of them were prosperity. None of them were wealthy at this. Yet, they went to the grave, believing and teaching that Jesus was raised. That there was a resurrection. And you see, if, if it was about wealth and prosperity, that they were using it to get rich, then you could question it. But they actually went to the grave and they sacrificed everything for nothing. That's how much they believed in it. And so it wasn't a quick rich or, or it wasn't about, you know, sitting in fancy hotels and flying on private jets. That wasn't it at all. It was the fact that they didn't profit from it that proves that it wasn't a law. And what they had now was something of substance to offer people. My friend, Frank Friedman, who uh, right now, actually, this morning, is being honored in his church because he's retired. And Frank, to me, is, is one of the greatest New Covenant teachers of our time. And he has a, a great phrase he likes to say about comparing people who, uh, who teach grace even, because grace can very quickly become a prosperity gospel too. He contrasts people who are a man with a message, he says, versus a man with life. See, a man with a message just wants to, to teach you and, and share the message with you, but that's it. It's just, just I'm going to offer you information, and that's about all I got. And so what happens now is when the difficult times come, they're like, oh, I didn't sign up for that. I just wanted to dump that information in me. But he said, a man with life is different. See, for a man with offering life to people, when those difficult times come, he doesn't run away. In fact, he says, this is why I signed. This is why I am with you, because I care about you, and I love you, and I want you to see God's grace in his life in you. 
And so here, I don't want to offer you a message. I want to offer you life. I want to stand with you and want to fight with you as you find that life. And suffering, what it does is it reveals what kind of a man you are. It's great value in suffering. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, after verses 1 and 2, talking about all the things we glory in, this justification by faith, having peace with God, being connected with God, and there's also glory in our tribulations. Think about that. We glory in the stress, we glory in the trials. Why would we ever do that? He says, because those tribulations, that, that pressure produces perseverance, yeah. the resilience. And that, that perseverance, that resilience produces proven character, that proven character because of the love of God is important within us. See, suffering is not our enemy. Suffering produces something good in us that leads to greater things. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, he says, consider all joy when you're being tested. That the outcome of that test may be your righteousness. It produces faith that you'd be lacking nothing. Or in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 11, read this sometime this week. Talking about Jesus and all that he endured. And he says, now for you and I, as sons of God, as daughters of God, we have a father who loves us. And a father that loves you will discipline your child. Because they care about you. They want to see you grow. They want to see you mature. And so we go through these difficult times because our father has a purpose. It's not causing all those bad things in your life, but he's got a purpose for those things. And he's redeeming all those things. Redemption is that you and I would find life in him, that we would share in his holiness. So verse 11, this is all, all trial, all discipline. It's not joyful. Songs. Get after books. After you've gone through those trials, after you've been trained by it, afterwards it produces a fruitful, uh, the, the fruit of righteousness. That's what it's doing. Or even Hebrews 5, 8, talking about Jesus himself. Jesus being his son, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. So God's using these trials. They're not bad. They're not our enemy. We see this over and over again in the lives of, of Joseph, of Moses, of King David, of Paul, of Peter, and all. Every character of significance that we read about in scriptures had to go through some kind of a difficult trial to learn to trust God and to learn in his power. That's why when I'm, when I'm looking to hire a counselor at my counseling ministry, I'm not primarily concerned with their education. Really not. I'm more interested in what they've gone through more interested in the, the struggles they've been through and what they learn from those struggles when it comes to trusting in Jesus. Because if they've learned that, that God's done something in them that they now can offer other people. Because the reality is you can only offer people what God's done in you first. And so earlier on in this letter, in, in chapter one, Paul talks about the, the, the suffering he's been through is so that he can be comforted. So the comfort he's received, he can offer to others we're going to suffer. God's offering us something far better than happiness. He's offering you something far better than money. He's even offering you something far better than health. He's offering you himself, his life, 
And so in those first 10 ins in our list there, they're heaven. But I want you to understand that the Christian life, although it is a sobering message, it's not a sovereign. It, there's hope and there's joy. And, and so there's, there's good news. And so he goes on in, in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, impurity. The word there for purity, the root word is the word hagios. It's where we get holiness from. And so despite all that's going on around us, we can still live holy. Still live from the life of Jesus inside of us. In knowledge. And not in knowing about, but an intimate knowledge. An intimate experience of the life of Jesus. And patience. That long suffering. And kindness, which is integrity. Where your outside matches the inside of your heart. And the Holy Spirit, not just from yourself, and in genuine love. The only adjective in the list here. Not just in love, not just in agape, not in God's love, but in pure, genuine, authentic love. And the word of truth, which I can't help but think he's talking about Jesus. And then finally, in the power of God, where you're not relying on your own strength, on your own effort, but it's God in and through you to other people. That's the source of it. And so now he's getting on the second list here, where it's the buys, which really can be understood also as throughs. And so he's talking about by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Right? We're armed with weapons of righteousness. I can't, I can't help but think about Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God. Right? We're on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and our sandals feeding with the gospel of peace. With the shield of faith to the fiery darts of the enemy, the evil one. And we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In both hands, we're armed with everything we need in Jesus. And then it's through glory and through dishonor. Through when people are praising you and when people are shaming and attacking you. Through evil report and good report. It doesn't matter. Because it's not about the fame. It's not about the success in this world. And then we come to the final list. And this final list is, is basically regarded as yet not or yet something else. So Paul's contrasting how they're seen and perceived by some versus who they really are. And so they're regarded as deceivers, regarded as snake oil, the snake, whatever, I'm out. I told you it'd be an interesting morning, right? So he's, he's regarded as someone trying to deceive or cheat people. He says, no, we're speaking the truth. They're regarded as unknown, as unimportant, not the real apostles. And yet, we're the real today. They may not be famous in the world, but they're famous in God's kingdom. Remember when some, some people were trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name and the demons said, Jesus we know, Paul we know, you we do not. They were famous in the right circles of death. Regarded as dying, facing struggles where death and struggles were all around them. But behold, the only emphasis he uses, pay attention, we're experiencing life, God's life. It's sort of like that, that God's butt of chapter four. Remember that? God's big butt. Regarded as punished by the authorities, yet no matter how many times they're knocked down, they get back up again. The disciples are dancing even after they're abysmal. Regarded as sorrowful, mistaken for how serious they, 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 they saw life, and yet they were always rejoicing. 
It doesn't mean that they went around and only had a positive confession, but they always had hope. They always knew that God was present and God was up to something and God was on the move. They were regarded as poor, so certainly not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And yet they were making others rich. It wasn't that they were getting rich off the gospel. They were making others rich, but it wasn't a richness of this world. Because think about it. A hundred years from now, how much money Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and every other rich person in the world have a hundred years from now? Nothing. Because we're told to store up our treasures not on this earth, but where? In heaven, where, where moth and rust cannot destroy it. Regarded as having nothing, yet possessing everything that matters in the person of Jesus Christ. Have gone wrong? Got put in need. So that's his, his list. That's his evidence of saying, look at what, look what I've done. Look what I've gone through for you. And in essence, what Paul's doing is he's fighting to earn their trust. He's fighting for that relationship. And here's why. Verse 11. We're going to see what Paul's agenda is. His purpose in all this is a new covenant minister. He says, our mouth was spoken free, has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak to you as children, open wide to us also. The question you ask when people are trying to gain your trust is what's their mouth? What do they want? Do they want you to be? Do they want to take advantage of me? Do they want to get rich off of me? What's, what's their motive? What's their agenda? And what Paul is trying to prove to them is his agenda is for them. His agenda is to fight for them. His agenda in doing all this was basically to say, I want to earn your trust so that when life is difficult, you'll know that I'm right there. That you can trust me. And you can trust what I'm telling you. You can trust that when I'm, I'm encouraging you and, and, and directing you towards Jesus, it's for your good. That I'm not getting anything out of us. It's about you. That's his model. Not trying to, not trying to fix something, not trying to change their behavior so that they look good. Too often I see that in churches where pastors are more interested in getting a certain kind of behavior from their people because those people are a reflection of them as a pastor. You are not a reflection of me. You're not. A reflection of your faith in Jesus. Well, my role is uh, as elders, bigger than that, all of us. Because who are the new covenant ministers? We are. So what we're all trying to do, hopefully, is is like Paul, laying down his life in order to love other people, in order to earn their trust, so that when when trouble hits, when the difficulties hit they will know that they have someone who will love them and point them back to Jesus. And that's what Paul's doing. That's his agenda. Turn, turn in Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. In beginning of verse 24, I think we see 
in essence, what Paul's heart is. He says, beginning verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Did you see it? I rejoice in my suffrage, not because I enjoy pain. But I know they're going to bless you. They're for your sake, for your gain. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We're all going to share in his afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Here it is, that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations and has now been manifested in his saints. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of his glory, of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, it's by Jesus, admonishing every man, every one of you, and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ for this purpose. Also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. They see as a jump there. You know, so that the people here in, in Colossians in this letter, but in Corinth or in Ephesus or in Rome or anywhere he went or any letter he wrote was that people would be experiencing that life in Jesus. And he proved it to him. If you, if you were in need, Paul was someone you'd go to. And you knew that Paul was going to love you. He wasn't going to reject you. He wasn't going to beat you up for lack of faith. He wasn't going to tell you, you just got to do more and you got to get serious about your faith. He was going to encourage you. He was going to tell you how much God loves you. He was going to tell you that the life of Jesus is available in you right now. Everything you need from life to godliness is in him and you. Waiting for you to apply. Waiting for you to experience that. I think that's when we get to you now. That our agenda here is, is to kind of earn your trust. What you will open up wide and receive what we're offering. It's, it's too easy to hear this message and think, well, that's, that's true of other people. That's, that's true of, of, of Barry and Lisa, but it's not true of me. It's, that's true of Pastor Robin and Deanne, but it's not true of me. And so we, we, we put it to the side. And what we're asking for is, let us prove to you that we're legit. Let us prove to you that we're sincere. And when we say that you are loved, it's because you are actually loved. Loved beyond anything you can imagine. That what motivates us is not us. It's not trying to build this little kingdom here on earth called New Life Fellowship. What motivates us is the kingdom of God and life in Jesus. And Christ in us wants to love each and every one. So you let it in. We open wide and trust. Not, not so much our love, because we're going to make mistakes, plenty of them. We're going to drop the ball plenty of times. We're going to fail. More times than you can count. But put your faith in God. Put your faith in, in the life of Jesus who loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he, he, he loves you. That's it.
Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that you prayer work and that we can trust you and that you are purposing all fans to work together for our good. And our good is that we would know you. Our good would be that we would experience you. Our good would be that we're conformed to the image of your side. And you're never going to give up on that purpose. In fact, you promised to complete it despite our efforts to get in the way. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that this morning you would continue that work and that we would, we would take the chance and we would risk trust. We take the chance to trust that we're loved right now. We can't add to that love. We can't subtract from that love. We just are. For that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit to convict us in. Convict us of who we are. Convict us that you're in us. Convict us that you're not in you with us anymore. But we're right. Right with you. You care about us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in the midst of these trials that we're all facing in varying degrees, that we would find that hope. We find that strength that you've offered us. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.